Thanks for joining the channel. In this episode, it's all about pheasants and pheasant survey that's done every year in the state of Iowa. So join us while we interview Todd Bogenschutz from the D Iowa DNR. Hey, if you like what these two dumbasses are doing, please hit the like button and subscribe today. Well, folks, uh, thanks for joining Midwest Hunting and Outdoors by Two Dumbasses. We've got uh, our topic today is the Iowa August uh, roadside survey, and we're going to focus on the pheasant uh, part of that survey. And we've got a special guest today. It's uh, Todd with the DNR. So, Todd, I'll turn it over to you to kind of introduce yourself here and uh, you know tell us who you are and your background, and we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks, Joel, Tim. Um, so, yeah, my name is Todd Bogenschutz. I'm actually the Upland Game Coordinator for the Wildlife Bureau of the DNR. So that means my responsibilities are pheasants, quail, Hungarians, cottontails, jackrabbits. We got some prairie chickens. I do a little bit with morning doves. And so that's kind of the, the critters that you typically find in the uplands are what I'm kind of responsible for. So I've got statewide responsibilities. So I do a lot of our surveys, any of our harvest surveys, population surveys. Um, do, uh, do any of our research projects related to those species and uh, do spend a fair bit of time on act policy as well because, you know, for a lot of these critters, CRP is kind of important and that's an ag policy with USDA. And so those, uh, those acres of habitat are pretty important in the state. So I do spend a fair bit of time, of, you know, looking at what's going on with USDA conservation programs in the state and, you know, how those programs impact our wildlife. So. Todd, education, and how long have you been with DNR? Uh, I've been with the DNR since 1995, so I'm getting to be an old sucker like you guys. You know, maybe I'll be retired here for too long, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, so actually born and raised uh, in upstate New York, kind of along the Canadian huh? border. So, uh, But, you know, did some pheasant hunting, rough grouse hunting there as a kid. It was probably a couple of my big passions, rabbit squirrels, so... Kind of probably what addicted me to, you know, these critters to begin with. So got a bachelor's degree in, in biology and then a master's degree at South Dakota State University in wildlife management, focused on pheasants there, kind of evaluating their food plot program as a master's student there. So, yeah, bounced around a few other states, but basically landed here. And so been here ever since. Good pheasant state. I'm an upland bird hunter, so think ain't better than that, does it? Nope. Ears up. Yeah. Ears ears up. Is that what you said? Yeah. Is that a jackrabbit thing from? With jacks? Yeah. Go jacks. I was going to say the same thing with, uh, we've got a connection here with the dumbasses with uh, the jackrabbits, don't we? We do. Yep. Uh, honestly, this is the first year I've really dug into the survey. I saw it on some uh, social media uh, pages, and then I saw it um, in in a newspaper, I think, uh, local newspaper, et cetera. Um, and then with a little research, went to the DNR website and voila, there's like loads of information out there that, uh, you know, I, I just didn't know existed. But uh, one of those was this, uh, you know, the 2022 Iowa August Roadside Survey. So what can you tell us about that? What's the purpose of it? How's it done? And, you know, what's the big whoop on that? So, yeah, you know, one of the statutory responsibilities that the legislature gives our bureau is obviously to monitor populations, habitat trends, harvest, and, you know, adjust seasons accordingly, 
trying to make, you know, as liberal as we can and as fairly distributed as we can amongst hunters. And so obviously to do those kinds of things, we need to collect some information and track the critters through time. And so that's kind of the, the just and the need for um, why we do them. I mean, we're kind of directed to by the legislature. So, um, you know, it's a survey that actually was started way back in the 1930s. Um, I don't know if our Iowa can claim to be the first one to do it because South Dakota had pheasants pretty early on too. It seems like some of the folks at Iowa State way back then had some foresight and, you know, kind of instituted the survey and now it's changed a fair bit since then. Basically it was standardized in about 1962. I mean, there was a lot of changes between the 1930s and the 1960s as they played around with it. You know, as we learn more about managing wildlife and stuff, it was a fledgling science back in the 1930s. So, but yeah, it's been standardized since 62. So we've got over half century of basically conducting the counts essentially the same way through time. So basically we tap into the fact that with pheasants, they don't like to be wet if they can avoid it. Um, so if we have a heavy dew in early August, uh, the hens will tend to bring their chicks to the roadsides in the mornings when we have heavy dews, calm wind, sunny, and they just kind of loaf there for a little bit, you know, waiting for things to dry off. Maybe the chicks will pick along a foxtail or whatever's along the edge of the road there, but, you know, just waiting things to dry off before they start their, you know, their business for the day of filling their crops and whatnot. That early August time frame is kind of ideal because the broods are roughly half to three quarters grown, so... When they're real young, the, the hens don't tend to bring the chicks out in the open much. You know, they're trying to protect them. But as they get bigger, you know, they're a little more confident. They're starting to get away from the hen. And so, but they haven't broken up completely yet. So just gives us a real good opportunity to get out there, you know, and see how many hens have a brood, what the average brood size is, how old they are. And so, you know, that's kind of why we shoot for that first two weeks in August and the conditions that we look for. Now in every county, we've got two routes. They're about 30 miles long. They're all on gravel roads. And we ask staff to drive them at about uh, 10 to 15 miles an hour. So it takes them about two hours to complete a route. Um, they start just before sunrise. Hopefully finish a couple hours after. And we just basically ask them to count all the critters they see. I mean, pheasants are our main target, but since we're out there, we also count quail and cottontail and Hungarians and, and jackrabbits too, because we're already out there and we're seeing those critters. So, um, you know, all that data comes in and, and then I can crunch those numbers and uh, see how the population compares the year before. So we run the same routes, same time of the year, same direction, generally by the same staff. So gives us a good comparison. Obviously, it's impossible to count all the pheasants out there. I mean, they're just too good at hiding and, you know, not being seen. So but this does give us a really good index from the population from one year to the next. So when I get all those numbers in here, I just crunch them and uh, see how the numbers compare to the year before. Things that impact it, probably the, one of the biggest things is due. I mean, that's kind of what we've shown through time. Iowa State discovered that about in the 1950s that, um, you know, heavy dews seem to be important to get the birds to the roadside. And so, you know, we have a drought like we've had this year or last year. We don't have a lot of soil moisture. And so dews kind of dependent on having good soil moisture to have a good dew. So, you know, we direct staff to shoot for the best morning that they can. You know, look for a morning that's got good heavy dew. And so we give them some tips on how to do that. Um, so both our law enforcement, our wildlife staff do the routes. So, but it's really up to them in that two-week window, you know, look at your weather, pick a day and, and go for it. 
we can have things like traffic, you know, vehicles come down the road in front of us or go by us, you know, they might spook things off the road. So we give some staff some guidance to, you know, pause, maybe give the birds a few minutes before you start the route again and see if they'll come back to the road and whatnot. So some things that we can't really control for, we just have to deal with. And I try to try to manage those as best I can when I crunch the numbers. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. You know, when we're all said and done, we've driven about 6,000 miles statewide. So I think it gives us a really good snapshot of what the population is doing compared to last year and, and also how it's distributed compared to last year. The, the two big things that really control our upland game populations in the state are habitat. You know, they got to have a place to live. And uh, the other thing is weather. You know, we got winter weather, we got spring weather. You know, the species that I'm responsible for don't migrate south like ducks and geese. I mean, they're pretty much stuck here to endure the winter. They can't get away from it. And so, you know, severity of the winter can really impact our hen survival. Um, so, you know, if we lose most of the hens, almost doesn't have, matter what happens in the spring if they're all dead. <laughs> you know, but spring is important too. Um, you know, those hens are tied to the nest. Takes them about 14, 16 days to lay a clutch of eggs. They don't start incubating until that full clutch is laid. You know, then she's stuck on the ground there for about 23 days straight in one spot, incubating those eggs. So a lot of potential mortality there for hens when they're tied to that spot. You know, normally they're moving around and can avoid predators, but you can't do that with a nest. And of course, do we get rain? Do we get hail? What are the temperatures doing? You know, not only when the hens got the eggs there and she's sitting on them, but right after the chicks hatch. They can't thermoregulate their body temperature until about 10 days of age. So totally dependent on the hen, you know, those that first 10 days of life to keep their body temperature where it needs to be. So, you know, if we have a wet, cool spring, that usually doesn't bode well for eggs or chicks early on. So all those kind of things kind of factor into what determines the populations do from one year to the next. Now, the one thing I will say about habitat is, is, you know, it's more of a long-term thing. Because habitat doesn't change that much statewide when you think about the habitat we have. You know, we're around two to three million acres of habitat in the state, statewide. Well, it's not like next year we only have one million. Habitat doesn't change that fast. It does change usually with ag policy, but not very quickly. Um, but that is very important for the birds, how much habitat we have. Now, weather, that's what really drives our changes from year to year is because it does impact habitat a little bit. And of course, it obviously impacts the survival of birds and stuff. So a lot of the swings we see from year to year are more just annual variation in the weather. Long-term trends are more reflective of what's going on in our habitat. You know, I'm really interested in that habitat side of it, you know, because I know hunters want lots of birds. And if we're going to have lots of birds, we need lots of habitat. So... I look at those things, you know, type of habitat, how it's arranged, how much we have, you know, those things all drive ultimately our population. The weather, can't really do much about it. Try to put the best habitat we can out there, but bottom line is Mother Nature's going to do what she's going to do. So uh, there's not like we can give pheasants little umbrellas or little boats or anything like that. I mean, <laughs> they are where they're at. So yeah. put all that number together and, uh, you know, we post it on the website. And so, you know, kind of a nice caveat of it is, is I can produce our statewide counts and hunters are really interested in that. You know, what's the population doing in my backyard this year compared to last year, you know, as far as our resident hunters go. 
Iowa has been historically been one of the top pheasant states in the nation. So we have a lot of folks from out of state that like to come and uh, enjoy the resource. And so they really look at the survey as, you know, where are the better regions? They tend to be a little bit more mobile and where they can go. And so they like to use it in that regard. So. So first off, you know, some really, I read the whole survey, some super great data. A uh, quick question for you, Todd, is, is if I look at your map that you have here um, of the state, and as I think about pheasants, how far do they travel, you know, in an area? So I'm going to tell you where I'm headed and then I'm going to turn it over to you. So I have a, I have a farm. I have roughly 40 acres of CRP. Um, and my CRP is anywhere from four to seven foot in, in height. But I also have woods, et cetera, surrounding it. Uh, plenty of water supply from uh, ponds and creeks, but I have zero pheasant, zero <laughs> Bob White. How, how does someone, I know you build habitat, but they have to also travel outside of a region to even find the habitat. How do you, how do you track that? Well, we know from past research from putting radios on wild birds, you know, the average home range in the summertime is probably around that 120 to 150 acres. Actually, in the wintertime, it can shrink a little bit from that, maybe down to 100. But, you know, it really depends on the winter. The birds are pretty plastic. I mean, if it's a stressful winter, we'll see birds move up to 15 miles trying to relocate to better habitat if where they're at fills in or something. No, no set rule of thumb there. But generally, during the spring and summer, probably around that 120 to 150 acres is a typical home range for a hen. So, you know, that's quarter section. So think about maybe half mile. I mean, obviously, if they're flushed or, you know, by a predator or hunter, they can sometimes make longer flights than that. So, like I said, there's no hard and fast on it. But generally, that's what we've seen from telemetry. And then, yeah, not all landscapes are created equal. Um, pheasants typically like kind of open landscapes without a lot of timber. I mean, they can tolerate some timber. But um, we get into southern Iowa. <clears throat> A lot of folks don't realize that South Central and Southeast Iowa are some of the last places that we opened pheasant hunting. Like our first pheasant season in the state was 1925, but we didn't have Southeast Iowa open to pheasant hunting until 1975, 50 years later, just because it wasn't good pheasant densities down there. And a lot of the areas down there, there still isn't. I think it's really set up more to be deer, turkey, cottontail habitat, that really good inner mixture of timber and everything, just more conducive to those species than pheasants. You know, pheasants are, you know, pretty plastic too. Like I said, they'll use some timber, but, you know, when you start getting a lot of timber in the landscape around you, it's just not really what they're seeking out. You can have a few birds make a go of it, but you're not going to see the numbers like, say, we see up in northern Iowa where we're mostly cropland and open and not a lot of timber. And so if you think about the distribution of where pheasants are best in the country, us, South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, not really known for a lot of trees. I mean, wetland, grassland, open, I mean, that's really where they, they do the best. So, um, so yeah, Iowa's definitely not equal north to south, east to west when it comes for potential habitat. So you see our lower numbers kind of in that southeast, south central, just because I think there's a lot of timber. We also see that very northeast Iowa, too. So, Okay. Anything I could do to improve that or 
No, it is. Um, you know, generally what we've got some private land staff that work one on one with landowners. And so that's where I direct you to. I figure out what county you're in and uh, just try to hook you up with one of our private land staff. So usually they'll make an appointment to come out the farm with you and, and just look at what you've got for habitat, see what's around there and, and give your recommendations based on that. Um, you know, it sounds like you got some good grass cover. Um, you know, it just depends on how much timber's around you and whatnot, um, and whether the factors play in there, whether the cropland's around. And so, you know, pheasants are almost always associated with some cropland. So if you have cropland adjacent to that grass, you know, things okay. like that. Okay. So, yeah, I do. Good. All right. Thank you. Todd, just a clarification on the survey itself, these routes. Um, I read in the survey that there was, each route is 30 miles what's this yep. and then what 180 is that the number i read or is it yeah actually we have over 200 okay about 99 counties two per route actually a few of the counties have a couple more where we have more staff but uh, yeah i think we actually run around 218 routes which is that's a lot of logistics um not only coordinating that but then getting the data and, and rolling it up right so i crunch a lot of data in about 10 days <laughs> You know, Jake, this is a whole lot more sophisticated than the armadillo population for the state of Iowa. Exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then on top of that, you got doves and, uh, um, yeah, you got armadillos out there. But uh, um, I'm assuming you're reevaluating these uh, routes all the time if, if uh, the logistics would change, roads are added, you know you know, the environment landscape's always changing. I'm, I'm just, is that a correct assumption? Yeah. And so we try to keep the routes in the same place. Like, so some of these routes may have not been changed since 1960, if the roads allow it. So, and the reason we don't move them around and they, you know, some people ask me, you know, they've gone on a route with one of our staff or something and they're like well you're not driving by the best habitat and i'm like well that's not the intent of the survey the tenant survey is to track the population along this route and as habitat changes through time we see how it impacts the population so we technically usually only change the routes if a road gets paved then it's just not safe to do the survey on you got traffic moving at high speeds and you just don't have the birds on it and then we sometimes do have roads abandoned or bridges go out. And so we do have to move the routes. But <clears throat> generally what we tell our staff is if you have something like that, contact me. We'll make a minimal change as little to the route as we can, keep as much of it as it was. And so it's kind of comparable from year in and year out through time. So Yeah, excellent, excellent. And I'll include this in the podcast as a visual, but, um, you know, it, to me, there's one one graph in the uh, in the survey that is a is super telling, and that's the, um, the statewide pheasant trends. You know, so it starts with 1962 and and goes through 2022. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And uh, so one, it, it kind of get paints a picture of my question is, well, you're obviously doing these observations for a reason. And, and the guess would be is, is the observations are to give you a, an indication of what the harvest might look like or what the total population looks like pheasants in any given year. Is that, is that correct? Yep, that's correct. And once we have the counts, because they're standardized and done the same way, I can take the counts and compare them to other data like 
habitat data that NAS puts out, like CRP, how many acres of small grains we have, how many acres of hay we have. So those things are all top quality pheasant habitat. So I can see how the counts relate to those features um, through time as those habitats have changed. And also I can pull NOAA data and see how the counts are influenced by our weather events. And so those are a couple of the two other big data sets that I normally use and uh, look at the counts with. So if you would plot our overall habitat in the state against the roadside count, you'd see there's a pretty strong correlation between <laughs> acres of habitat and how many birds we have. Yeah, that that and, uh, you know, there's clearly a relationship between the harvest um, harvest information in your survey count. How, how, where does the harvest information come from? I, I, I gotta admit, uh, I'm not, I haven't pheasant hunted for so long because it's just been, it's been tough. It's tough and it's, I grew up in Northeast Iowa and it's like, man, if you saw a pheasant, you know, it was a miracle. But uh, anyway, that's beside that. Uh, but the harvest information, where does that information come? So, um, you know, as a pheasant hunter, you have to buy a hunting license. And so um, basically we send about 8,500 postcards out after the season to a random sample of our hunters, both resident and non-resident. So, um, and then, yeah, we just hope hunters fill those cards out, send them back to us. So they tell us how many days they hunted, how many they harvested. And so with those numbers, we kind of relate that back to our overall license sales to come up with a harvest estimate. And as you can see, looking at the graph, the two tend to correlate pretty well. So, you know, an honest truth, you know, hunters are almost like another giant survey that happens in the fall. I mean, they go out there and they chase the birds and harvest birds. And so it's kind of almost like a second survey of the population. So as you can see, the two generally match up pretty well. And, you know, basically with the roadside count, I can almost predict what harvest is going to be. The two correlate that well. So, yeah, it certainly does. Tim, one last question, then I'll, I'll pause here um, for your, your questions. On topic here of this graph, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me looking at it. I think it would make sense to anyone looking at it. One thing that caught my eye is, um, you know that the survey information has always been lower than the actual harvest information until you know so the the hollow circled um compared to the solid circled information until um what 2014 and then since 2014 the survey information has actually been in higher anything change there or what what would cause that um, you know, you have to look at the scales there too. So our pheasant counts only go to about a hundred, you know, and we were really good in the sixties where our pheasant harvest has approached 2 million. So if I change those scales, I could make those flip. So don't read too much into that. Um, but you know, I try to keep them as proportional as I can, as the data allows me because they come in at different numbers, you know, much different numbers. Um, but there is a little bit going on there. And I think it's basically what you're seeing there toward the end is actually a little bit of a decline in hunter numbers because pheasant harvest is not only determined by how many birds we have, but how many hunters are pursuing them. And so if you go back to say the mid nineties there, we had 200,000 pheasant hunters pursuing pheasants that year. You look at 2011 there, we had fallen to about 40,000. We've just seen a decline in hunters, and that's something that we're seeing nationwide, unfortunately. So um, hunter numbers have recovered a little bit since then. Last year, we were about 61,000. 
Um, but, you know, based on the roadside counts where we were a year ago, you know, if we had the hunters we had, say, 10, 15 years ago, we had the birds to probably shoot half a million roosters, another 100 to 200,000 more than we did based on past results in the survey when we had higher hunter numbers. So, so I think what you're seeing there a little bit, Joel, is, yeah, that just, we don't have the hunters. I mean, yeah, I've looked at time through time, you know, what does our average pheasant hunter shoot? Because we ask, we send out the harvest survey, hunters tell us how many days they hunted and how many birds they shot. You know, if I look back through the last 20, 30 years, it stays amazingly consistent. Most hunters shoot about five to seven birds for the season. So if I put 40,000 hunters out there and they're shooting five birds per season, or if I put 100,000 hunters out there and they shoot five per season, you know, that changes our harvest figure quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, uh, that That's really what was behind my question is, is when I looked at that, I'm like, I wonder if that's related to, uh, um, to decline in, in number of hunters out there. So mm-hmm. cool. I think that's partly what's going on there with that. Timbo, how, what questions do you have? So Todd, with regards to, I've heard mixed, mixed things. So you're the expert here. So whether I have, uh, let me rephrase that. How is the population of, I'm going to, I'm going to, I know we said we're focused on pheasant, but pheasant and quail impacted by the number of hunters. So my, let me add a little more context. If I have hunters out there and let's say I have my property and I have a, I have a covey of quail and I don't want to go out and hunt those covey of quail because I want them to be back next year. If I let them sit well and not hunt them, will I still have a strong herd or, or a strong flock? Yeah. So great question, Tim. I mean, I get that a lot about, you know, can we kind of stockpile critters for next year? And the thing to understand with thing like pheasants and quail and cottontail is most of them don't live much beyond two years. So they're lucky if they get to reproduce once in their life. So um, it's really hard to not shoot them one year because odds are they won't be around the next year. It's just, they have a really high turnover rate, which isn't a bad thing um, because they tend to produce a lot of young. So, I mean, they kind of offset their high mortality rate with, by producing a lot of young. So that's how they counteract it. So they have large nests and lots of young. And, and so, you know, if we have a really bad winter or bad spring, that means we may have a whole bunch of individuals that don't reproduce and the population can fall pretty quickly. But it also means we have a really good winter or we have a really good spring with it. I mean, they seem to like explode because that's just how they're built. A little bit different than deer and turkey, you know, they can live to be five, six, eight, ten 10 years old. If they miss a reproductive cycle, you know, the next year they can go again or the year after. But most pheasant hens, you know, they're born one year. Hopefully they survive long enough to nest that following year and produce babies and carry the population on. And odds are they probably won't make it to the next year. And so um, that's kind of why we really focus on habitat. Um, trying to put the best habitat we can out there, winter survival, good nesting. And we try to set the seasons accordingly, knowing that about the species. So with like pheasants, where sex really is easily identified, we, you know, target the males because they don't really contribute to nesting. I mean, they breed the females, but beyond that, they don't help raise the chicks. They don't incubate the eggs, anything like that. And so that rooster-only harvest really protects that critical important of that segment, the females. So... 
But you get into species like pheasant or excuse me, quail and hans where you can't tell sex on the wing. You know, then we have to be a little bit more judicious and kind of look at season length and bag limits and try to make sure that we don't over harvest because hunters could theoretically over harvest. Um, but generally we don't see it. Um, <clears throat> you know, people ask, well, couldn't we shoot so many roosters that the hens wouldn't be bred? There's been research done on that. And really, you have to get down to a ratio of about 10 hens per one rooster before you start impacting fertility and stuff of the eggs. And through our surveys, hunters have never been able to get beyond about three roosters per 10 hens. We've never even got close to that one to 10. And a lot of years it's five to 10. So no, no impact on the reproductive side of it as far as roosters and getting hens bred. So kind of a nutshell. So the, so the message I'm hearing from you is, is uh, generally speaking, is if you have if you have those animals, those little critters, as you said, on your property, or you want to go hunt them, hunt them. You're not going to impact the population. General rule. I mean, when we talk about things like quail, you know, if you've got a farm, you've got two or three cubbies on them, we'll probably recommend that you probably don't shoot more than 20% of what you think you have out there. I mean, the coveys, if they get shot down too much, generally combine up with other coveys to survive the winter. And so they're pretty adept at, you know, surviving Mother Nature. But rule of thumb on quail is about 20% harvest, 30% somewhere in there. So if you got a 10-bird covey, you can shoot two or three, and you're not really impacting what's going to happen next year. The way I shoot, they're safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with most hunters, that's probably the case. Yeah, so. Timmy clearly hasn't uh, seen us dove hunting lately, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure. Hey, Todd, I, we're, we've got a gambit. I've got several more questions, but I know there's a lot of our listeners going to be listening to this podcast and like, hey, boil this down to me, Todd. What uh, what can I expect uh, here in about 30 days in the state of Iowa uh, for this year's pheasant season? Am I gonna am I gonna see more? Am I gonna see less? Or what, what am I gonna see when I go out there hunting? I got to speak in a couple terms. First, I'll talk statewide. Um, our counts are essentially unchanged statewide from last year, and last year was our best harvest in 13 years at almost 400,000 roosters. So counts being the same, I think that's setting this fall up to be pretty good. Uh, looks like. We're in a drought still. Looks like combines around me are rolling already this week. And so I think a lot of crops will be out by the time season gets here. And that always improves harvest on the opener. Birds got less places to hide. So, you know, I'm thinking it's looking pretty good. Now to break it down regionally, you know, I clump all of our data together to get that statewide estimate. Um, we saw some increases and in actually over toward Iowa City and down toward Burlington there. So, you know, hunters down in that part of the state might actually see a little bit of an increase um, compared to last year. Now, if you go to like Northeast Iowa or Central Iowa here or down toward Osceola, we kind of saw a little bit of a decrease. So it wasn't big, but, you know, you might see Fewer birds, but I'm not sure if hunters will notice it a whole lot, but there could be. And then the other regions of the state are pretty much spot on with last year. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, lack of dew can kind of influence our counts. And we certainly saw that in parts of South Central and up in Northwestern Iowa. So actually the counts may be better than what we counted just because we didn't, didn't get the birds to the roadside to count them. So, but overall, 
I think uh, we're setting up to have a, another great fall as far as bird hunting. Yeah, I do have one more question before you go in there, Jake. Uh, so what percent get harvested uh, of our harvest in the first week or first month, whatever makes sense? Yeah, so we do ask that question on our small game survey. How many birds did you harvest of what you harvested in the first nine days? So basically the first two weekends of the season. And uh, it hangs in there pretty steady at about a third. So those 400,000 birds we harvested last year, a third of them were um, harvested by day nine. So a lot, of, a lot of activity there early in the season, but, you know, still great hunting throughout the rest of the year, too. A lot better shooters than you and I, Jake. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a, a ton. Todd, if we can kind of shift gears just a little bit, or at least these questions are going to force you to shift gears a little bit. So what is the... You know, what's the state doing? What's the strategies um, of the state? And, and uh, you know, you're kind of the leader of this to uh, increase the population. So, you know, uh, embedded in that question, does do you guys do any, you know, planting of birds or anything like raising birds or anything like that? Um, okay. Um, yeah, that second question is easy to answer. That's no. Um, you know, within state government, there's generally a rules in place where you're not supposed to compete with private business. We have a lot of private shooting reserves that put two birds put and take and the state dumping them out for free would be direct competition with them. So um, we kind of figure they can handle that part of the hunter community that wants to do that very well. And so we let them do it. They're good at it. And so I know how to do it. So, so no, we don't do any put and take type hunting within Iowa. Um, as far as wild birds and our focus, of course, we're always trying to buy public land. Um, <clears throat> Iowa is one of the lowest public land states in the country, I think, almost dead last. Maybe, maybe Rhode Island, Connecticut have less public land than we do. And, uh, so we acquire about 3,000 acres a year. It's kind of what we've been averaging. So not a big figure when you think about the state of Iowa, but um, some of that's forested because obviously we have deer and turkey hunters too. It's not all pheasant habitat. So, you know, we slowly add a little bit every year, but certainly that doesn't meet the demand that our hunters have. And so most of Iowa is a private land state. And obviously we can't tell landowners what they can and can't do with their land. All we can do is provide good information and, and programs. And so that's where I spent a lot of time working on USDA, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. CRP in Iowa is probably our biggest habitat program. We've got 1.6 million acres in the state. You know, to put that in perspective, we might have 150,000 acres of public land that we manage. So, I mean, a factor of 10 more. I mean, so it's just huge in what it means to our upland game population. So, yeah, I work with our USDA staff in the state. You know, we have a special project in CRP called SAFE specifically targeted at pheasants where landowner enrolls in this practice. They have to do a good patch of winter cover. They have to put a nice food plot by it. And they also have to put a good patch of nesting cover right by it. So I like to think of it as the bedroom, the living room, and the kitchen all right there. Birds never have to leave the cover, always protected, always hidden from predators, no need to be in the open, um, <clears throat> good winter cover, good food, good nesting cover. So we have a quail safe in the state, um, you know, targeted at quail, little different factors, but um, so that's really what we're promoting. Um, 
you know, like I said, we have private land staff scattered across the state um, that work with private landowners and talk about programs. Pheasants Forever is an organization also has farm bill biologists and they work very closely with our staff. I mean, we're always working together and trying to get as much good information out there to programs. You know, a lot of times the landowners don't even realize what programs are available to them on their farm, what kind of cost shares available, which ones they're eligible for. And, you know, we had a crash with our pheasant population, some bad winters there from 2007 to 2010, and the legislature directed us to um, see what the state could do in addition to kind of rebound the population. And so we brought on a bunch of the ag folks like the corn growers, the soybean growers, Farm Bureau. We brought in a lot of landowners, the NGO groups like Pheasants Forever ourselves. And just, you know, I had this brainstorming session. And one of the big things that came out uh, from many avenues was just better information for landowners, knowing the tools that, uh, that are out there and available. So, and I'll probably end with one of the other programs that we started through Farm Bill is our IHAP program, which is our walk-in hunting program. So what we've done with that is, is a lot of landowners have CRP. Maybe it isn't the best for birds, but we go in with that landowner and say, if you make these improvements to the habitat, we'll pay for it. If you allow public hunting access, that's our return for our investment in it. And so we've got 40,000 acres of that spread across the state now. So, you know, habitat that's out there that's now open to the public. So that's another way that we've tried to, you know, bump up um, strictly voluntary on the landowner's part. Um, but, you know, they need some help managing their habitat. We can provide some dollars to do it. And for doing that, they give us public access. So encourage everybody to check out our, our hunting atlas on our webpage. Just go to the iowadnr.gov and type in hunting atlas and you can see all of our public lands there, both our lands, county conservation board lands and our walk-in hunting areas. I didn't even know that. That's awesome information. You know, I mean, the, that hunting atlas, that's a, that's a nice little, little nugget of information I didn't realize. No, I mean, he, this has just really been great from Todd. So I, I don't have anything right now, Jake. Yeah, awesome. Last question I've got, Todd, is just kind of, you know, five years from now, right? We, we're kind of talking year to year here, but um, do you envision anything changing either with the population or, you know, how, we, uh, how we're managing the population in the next five years, i.e. genetics, technology, you know, whatever it would be that might change the game here in Iowa that, you know, we might see something, uh, an increase in the birds? Excuse me, it's certainly all related to habitat. So, you know, we've got a farm bill coming in 2023. Congress always renews the farm bill every five years. And so I've already spent a bunch of time working on that, trying to keep CRP at a level that's sustainable. Um, you know, CRP used to be at 36 million acres nationwide. Over the last couple of farm bills, they've knocked it down to as low as about 22 and so we lost a bunch of habitat in those years, just landowners couldn't get back in. They've since raised it up to 27 million. You know, I would like that to go higher. Um, I'd like to see us get back up to 37 because if I can put habitat on the ground, we can grow a bunch more birds here, but just, just all related to habitat on the ground. Will that happen? We're in a major drought, crop prices are high. 
You started a war in Ukraine, which cut into ag supplies like wheat and corn and soybeans. It's driving prices up. So, you know, we've seen some landowners leave the program in Iowa because, you know, the neighbor's willing to pay a three, $400 an acre rent. Crop prices are high. So, you know, I don't blame people for that. So, but I think if the war in Ukraine would wrap up sooner and later, it'll put a downward pressure on prices and they'll fall. And that's when CRP gets a lot more attractive to landowners because they'll look at those marginal lands and say, you know, you just ain't returning the profit. And I think CRP is a better fit for that part of the field. And, you know, maybe we'll put that back in and obviously we get more birds out there. So they are the, you know, people ask me about, you know, maybe 10, 20 years down the road, what do I see? I mean, you know, you've heard all this talk about bioenergy and perhaps making ethanol from like switchgrass or native grasses. I mean, if that ever happened, you know, depending on how it's managed, I mean, that could put a lot of potential habitat out there on the landscape if we started planting switchgrass or native grasses to, you know, create fuel. But so far, it hasn't happened. There's been a lot of test projects about it, but um, it's not really taken off as competitive yet. But, you know, who knows what the future brings. Yeah, well, I, I, this dumbass has, has an opinion on what would, like, jump up the level of uh, pheasants in Iowa and it'd be put a bounty on every raccoon that there is out there 365 days a year and kill them all. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice to uh, it'd be nice to see the fur market come back. So I guess, I guess message to everyone out there hunting is buy your wife a fur coat and get <laughs> prices up. Right now we've seen such a drop off in trappers and you can't blame them. I mean, two or three dollars for a coon pelt i mean it ain't hardly worth the gas anymore so no no absolutely that was Hot. a politi- very good politically uh politically sensitive uh answer todd that was very well answered it was very well done todd any topic or any uh you know message you'd like to send before we close out no i'd say you know if you're an avid pheasant hunter don't be uh, afraid to share that with the elected officials about CRP and the importance of the habitat programs we have. You know, you look at the survey, you know, that you guys have gotten front of you in the 1960s there, we were at almost 10 million acres of habitat. And today we're under three. I mean, it's not rocket science why we don't see the birds that we saw 40 years ago. It's just got to give them a place to live. And so I think we crank out good bird numbers as good as we ever have, where we still have habitat. We just don't have near what we used to have. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you drive down the, you drive down the highway, you still see farmers clearing out habitat for more acres. I mean, we all see it, right? Yep. And, you know, I understand that, you know, farmers make a, a living at it. I come from a farm background. My wife's family was a farm background. And so, but there's also those areas, you know, that aren't as productive and areas long stream or water quality and chemicals are a big issue. And so, you know, I think there's definitely spots on the landscape that, you know, should be in conservation and not farm. And so I think it's just, you know, getting that information out and making sure everybody's aware of what programs are available. To Excellent. Well, Todd, certainly do uh, appreciate you joining us and uh, would love to have you on a future podcast uh, down the road, maybe on doves or, uh, maybe after the season of pheasant, just check in with you and see how it's going. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Had fun today. So appreciate it, guys. Great. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Todd. And, uh, you know, and Joel, and until next time, be, be safe. safe.
have and get out get outdoors. Yeah. yeah, go chasing birds. It's gonna be a good fall. Can't wait. Thanks for listening or watching our show. We have some exciting topics and guests coming up. 